This is uh, Joshua Bell with our Kilt in the Cloth Tuesday morning Bible study. And this week we start a new book called Second Peter. Um, so here's, here's what we know about Second Peter. We don't know where it was written. We, most scholars want to say that a possible origin could have been Rome. There's a lot based off of the language. There's a lot based off of the, uh, the style of writing that kind of leans it towards the end of the first century, however, maybe even part of the second century. Um, trying to think what else is just really weird about this. Uh, oh, my commentary talks about, it doesn't give us an audience. Uh, it's more like a farewell address. That's what it says here. But the interesting thing about, for, for me, theologically, is, is that it's a, it's a fairly short book, which is why we're doing these studies. Um, it's broke down into four pieces, and this is where I use my commentary the most because it's it's got a good outline. So you, you have this style of writing. Um, re remember that letter writing, there's a formality to it that's a lost art now, but there was a formality in, in the writing of letters, even back to the first century, you know, uh, to the people of such and such. I'm writing this to you from the bottom of my heart. I give you all of my fair wishes and, and so on and so forth. And then um, and then and then you get into the meat. Like I'm, I'm writing this letter to address you about such and such issue. When Paul does it, he's he's more florid with his opening and he doesn't really mince words because he doesn't have a lot of paper to write on, you know, so, and, and it's a joke, but it's not really, so, but he, he didn't, didn't have paper, so he didn't, he didn't have a lot of, he just, he had such an urgency with his writing, you don't get that with first and second Peter, there's not as much of an urgency, but the writing style is still somewhat of a high Greek nature, it's the way that you would write it would not be considered uh, of a lower vernacular. Um, so this person was definitely educated, um, definitely had uh, a very good grasp of the language of the time. So that would have mattered. Um, there's a warning. Remember, there's always a warning in a letter in the New Testament uh, against false teachers. Um, th this, is, this is important because historically, Okay, this we don't talk about this enough, and I think I'm going to do that just for a little bit this morning. Jesus dies. You have two groups of people that are leading the way, right? We, we've always talked about the way is the ones that call themselves the Christians, right? They weren't called Christians uh, until really about the second century. So during the first century, that they would not call themselves Christians. It was a derogatory term. Um later on so jesus dies resurrects goes into heaven got these 11 slash 12 disciples because matthias has been you know adopted into the 12 they're in jerusalem we have some archaeological evidence that said they didn't all stay in jerusalem but that they did scatter peter stays in jerusalem specifically um and he does kind of go out away from jerusalem but his goal is to focus in on his people we have then this Paul guy who really just kind of 
messes things up for every culture. I mean, like he he's a he's a Roman citizen, but he's a Jewish Pharisee. Um, he's able to travel. He's a, his his real trade is he's a tent maker, so he's able to travel and go to different places. And in the places that he does, he introduces this Jesus God. They call themselves followers of Christ, or as um, our founder would say, they were disciples of Christ. So uh, this disciple terminology really became a big deal for all students. In the first century, that's it. But nobody could agree on each other. And somehow, we have proof that when the people left Jerusalem, Pharisees, most likely, who have now lost their job because the temple has been destroyed, are going to these communities where these Christian people are and are tearing them down. Your proof would be like Galatia. Uh, obviously, somebody came to them of uh, that had an axe to grind and says, you, you were not following your dietary laws. You're not following your uh, Torah in any way, shape, or form. And Paul gets mad at him and calls them foolish. Why would you listen to them? You don't need to listen to that. That's the old way. This is the new way and blah, blah, blah. So obviously there's these people that are going out and teaching against the things that Jesus had brought to them. This happens historically in every aspect of a movement. When I, when I talk about movement, I'm not talking about, like when you think civil rights movement, that's a good example. But in the religious movements, um, it takes us about 500 years before we kind of make sense. So Jesus comes and says, this is a new way of thinking about God. I'm God's son. Now we have a Holy Spirit. Now there's a heaven and there's a hell. It's going to take them 500 years before they actually make sense of that. This is why we know the Gospel of John was written much later than the other Gospels. This is why we know that the book of Acts of the Apostles was written in the second century because there's institutional things that they're just acting like should have happened that you're not going to find in the letters of Paul. So there's a sequence of events that take place in a movement that take a long time. Um, so you think about it this way. Around the year 500, Rome is kind of falling apart. And the only thing that's surviving is, well, this church movement that has connected people together in the name of Rome. By the time you get to the year 1000, 1086 is when they had the first crusade in the name of God, Right. Then you go even further, 1500, there's this really weird dude by the name of Martin Luther who decides to write 95 pieces and post it on the door that says that we're not going to be this anymore. And then here you are in the year 2000, and you start to see the United States and all of these other worldly uh, global churches. Now we have a million different, I'm not million, I'm exaggerating, but we have a whole bunch of different flavors of Christianity and you're seeing the movement shift again. Like, what is it does it mean for us to be a Christian 2,000 years later in the future? You, you see what I'm saying? So this rabbit trail that I'm taking us on is on purpose because in every single one of your letters in the New Testament, they're going to talk about false teachers. 
the part that's important for us to recognize is in the 20th and the 21st century, that false teacher is different. It's going to be used differently in a sermon than it would have been in the first century for the writing. Does that make sense? And yes, and and and, and go ahead, Carrie. Well, I'm thinking about the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So you said made reference something about after about a thousand years after Jesus, if I interpreted this correctly, I mean, that kind of started the church movement, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point... We solidified ourselves. <laughs> but not necessarily in, a, in, a, in the correct manner. Correct. The Crusades were had nothing to do with God or yeah. <laughs> anything else. Be, be careful Any with religion. what you recognize about the Crusades. Yeah, so the, 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 plundering. The, the Crusades, we know historically that the churches in Europe were broke. And one of the things that's in, it's fascinating when you look at it historically is just like the United States, we, we kind of get this backwards. When we talk about a separation of church and state, up until that time historically, the church told the state what to do. When we founded the country, we said, no, that's not going to happen ever again. And, and the weird part was, is if you just look at their journals and all this stuff from our founding fathers, it was the idea of this in the state, the church isn't going to tell the state. What going, what's going to happen, and the state's not going to tell the church what's to happen, because then they're ruling over each other, and you can't have one without the other, and you can't, you shouldn't have one ruling over the other, because if we are truly a movement, and for those of you online, that's a quote, if, it, if it's truly a movement, it will literally move organically. If you put limits and stuff, it won't happen. But God was still center on both of those in government and state in some aspects yeah. in theory in some aspects there were some of those people that felt that way I, I think we've we've pretty much proven in the last probably 50 years that Thomas Jefferson may have thought differently than we thought previously um, that he we tend to think that he was like this super Christian person, but then when you look at his stuff, mm, not really. Uh, you, I mean, you look at his, his, his uh, he was two steps away from being an agnostic, if we want to be honest. I mean, I'm being mm -hmm. totally yeah. serious. You look at all of his writings. And he, we wrote, go, he wrote his own version of the New Testament where he excluded anything miraculous, just kept yes. the parts that he liked. That's exactly right. And, and so there's, so, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to be careful, Karen, because this, this is before the 21st century. Mm -hmm. we, we just kind of said these things, but now we're going back and we're looking at the data and we're going, now, wait a minute. Thomas Jefferson was really focused in on this idea of what would it look like if we were focused in on Plato's Republic? And, and Plato has this idea of... of a divine being, but the divine being is us leading each other 
um, it, with with having equal voice coming out of this cave idea. I mean, it's like it was brilliant, but Thomas Jefferson uh, really struggled with this. And so then, then, then we struggle with, okay, now wait a minute. Our whole life, we've been told this. And now we have this guy who we've elevated to this point, and you know, he's he's a big deal. <laughs> right? He's a huge deal in our country. But is he Christian? Well, well, we're gonna struggle with that because he's we ben, we can't prove it. Benjamin we're Franklin as well is a yeah, but Benjamin Franklin is a yeah. candidate for we we always talk about him being Quaker. Mm -hmm. And then he looked you he is his writing is now fully available, and and he is uh his writing has really proved to a different understanding. There was such a big deal about this false teaching, right? When we formed our country with this idea that the monarchy is bad. Our nobles that have ruled over us for centuries are horrible human beings. And we have declared our independence from them in July 4th, 1776. And now we have created this new constitution and bill of rights without them on our own two feet. And then we got to figure out what we do with the church because in that end, the church was also bad. And it's not just Catholic. Mm -hmm. The Church of England was bad. Uh, Lutheranism was really struggling with who is in charge and who is in power. Uh, there were people being killed and crucified, not crucified, uh, executed for baptizing people publicly uh, that moved here. We call them Anabaptists. Most of you might know them as Mennonites or Mennonites. They, they were being uh, executed for doing these things publicly. I mean, it was a big deal. So when we came to the United States, we said, we want to be a free from that junk too. Mm -hmm. So the false teaching in the United States said, if it looks European, it smells European, sounds European, gone. In the first century, false teaching was a different idea completely. It was this idea of taking you away from feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. And then you yeah, have bits and pieces of Torah. Mm -hmm. But both of those would be, depending on your viewpoint, false teachers. Yes. If the um, priests. Mm -hmm. uh, which which version? Either side. Are we talking Jewish? We'll go to Jewish. Okay. They're, they're there because they consider what Paul's teaching. Paul's a false teacher. Yes. He's, he's yes, now you're getting it. He, he's leading away from what they believe. That's right. Now, Paul's sitting there going, no, they're trying to pull us back, and we've seen the light. We know that's not the way. So they're false teachers. Mm -hmm. So anybody that doesn't believe what you're saying is a false, false teacher. teacher. And that's where we're at today. And we're still doing it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I'm only using this as an example, but, you know, somebody leaves the church, and you go, why did you leave the church? Well, I'm over here at this church. Oh, well, you know, those are going to be false teachers. Be careful with, with what you're hearing over there. It wouldn't be that bad, but it has been that bad, you know. Yes. I mean, either come back or whatever the right word is. We're just going to, you can never come back. Excommunicate. Yeah. Thank you. That's the word. I'm so I'm glad you used that word. So excommunication was the thing that started happening around the fifth century when people could say you're either with us or you're against us. And if you're, you're not with us, you're out, which is exactly the opposite of what was happening in the first and second centuries. 
which is what they had learned previously um, from the high priest that he was talking about, like in the before the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin could decide who got to stay and who didn't. And it was all based off of how you practiced and how you didn't. And if you didn't wear the right clothes that day, or if you didn't bring the right offering. So this 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 document that we're reading today, I want you guys to hear that conversation because it's at the turn of the first and the second century that you start to hear this language specifically. And I also think it's why it's important for us to read it this way, because if we if we just read it to say this would make a really good sermon, uh, which is way I probably would have taught it 10 years ago, I'm going to miss all the nuances of the language here. So th think about that before we read it. Any, any more conversation or discussion? One real uh -huh. silly question, but First Peter starts off, Peter, apostle uh, of Jesus Christ. This one starts off, Simon Peter. Is there any significance in him no. calling his name out? Uh, Are they two different authors? No. Uh, well, the answer would be, we oh, don't no. know. We, we, don't, we don't know if it's two different authors or not. They're, they're attributing it to Peter. So... Um, and maybe it is him talking and somebody's writing it down, but Simon is just kind of name. I just didn't know if there was any significance to who they were writing to her. And my commentary says that he had at least three names. Uh, well, three secretaries. I'm sorry. Oh, three secretaries? Yeah. Yeah, probably. And they called him out. Anyway. Back to because I think he does that at the end of first Peter, right? Doesn't he call out the person helping him write? Yeah. 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 So, uh, anything else? Well, let's get started. It'll be fun. Uh, we might not get through chapter one. We'll see. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant of, and apostle. Listen to that language. An apostle. Is it an apostle in Greek? It's apostolos and, and it's slave, not servant. Doulos. Doulos. Yeah. That every time that you probably will see the translated as servant, it is slave. Um, sorry, it's just that's the way it is in Greek. So if it says servant, it's probably slave. And if it says apostle, it's probably apostle. This one is apostolos. Apostolos. And then apostolos. That's where we get the word, obviously, apostle, apostle. And this, this person is uh, in the social structure, um, a teacher of Jesus. And then you have disciples, right? So an apostle, I'm a teacher of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I'll go into that later. To those who have received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, that is thick. May grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So look, look at how very articulate this person is right off the bat. Um, some would say, well, this is Paul. Well, this is different than Paul because he's this person's obviously mirroring Paul because he calls himself an apostle. So that's where your, your clue is, is that this person uh, knows of Paul's writings, maybe even knows of some of the things that are going on, but this apostle thing is a big deal and then of course the may grace and peace be yours is usually 
to whom it may concern <laughs> to us today. Um, okay, here it goes. Remember the whole part of our conversation. We're trying to figure out what it is that we're doing now that Jesus is gone. And if this is written after the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed, which is where most scholars put it, we got to understand what that means even more. So here it goes. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with that a copy? With, God, with God's love. The mutual affection is brotherly love. Yeah, I was wondering if that was it. Uh, for if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is nearsighted and blind and is forgetful of their cleansing of the past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth. Uh, truth. What is that word there? What's that? Yeah, so that is true. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body uh, to refresh your memory, since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. There is so much going on there. Do you see it as a how-to guide? That's I, I remember I remember having this, this discussion in seminary one time because we did a, a section in one of my classes on the little books of the New Testament, right? Short books, sorry, not little books, short books of the New Testament. And I remember my professor saying, and here's your how-to how guide. If you don't know how to understand what this means, just start following uh verse 5 and then all the way down to verse 11 it'll make sense this is how you do it this is your how-to guide to any time that you need to know what it means to be a christian this is your barometer i loved it that's a sermon too but i'd like to get to get a hold on number 10 Okay. I'd sure like to have to find a way to not stumble. <laughs> right? Yeah. This sounds like to me like uh, like school. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you know, you go to first grade and you learn the alphabet, and then, you know, towards the end of first grade, you're starting to read. Second grade, full-blown reading. And, mm -hmm. I mean, so that's how to become a Christian. Yeah, that's you it. Miss, you miss, and if you stumble <laughs> on number four, go back to number one. Just start over again. And it gives you even uh, the fact that you won't be alone by this. Which is also really pertinent for this purpose. When I stumble, I'm going to fall on somebody else who already stumbled. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. And the goal is, is that these people are going to help the, the rest of them that are around you. are going to pick both of you up, dust you off, and start over again. Brilliant, right? You see how brilliant of writing this is? This, this really gives us direction. It's very abnormal. I'm, I'm seen in other uh, epistles um, in New Testament where it seems like it does this, and then there's this, and then add to this to this, and then this mm -hmm. leads to this, and this, you know, I don't know if that's just a writing style that they had back then, or is that, is like verse five uh, and six and seven, is that actually a logical progression, you know, like add to your faith goodness, all right, does that logically mean after you kind of worked on goodness that it's going to lead Maybe I'm overanalyzing this. Is this going to lead to knowledge? Okay, I've worked on my goodness. Now I'm going to work on knowledge. All right, I'm feeling a little smarter. What am I going to work on next? <laughs> Self-control. Self All right, I'm going to stumble. <laughs> back to back to verse four. <laughs> well, but, I, I mean, I, I think you already answered your question. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they struggled with this as a culture. Yeah. If you're Jewish, for example, and you're hearing this, they already understand that. If you're a Gentile, you also understand this. But nobody's ever claimed it. Right? As a Christian, we we there's a there's an interesting process that when that I think that we can have proof of historically here that Christians still struggle with today. Well, here's God, here's Jesus. Any questions? Okay, good, let's move on. We, we have a tendency to assume that as soon as somebody's accepted Jesus, which is a big deal, by the way, right? You profess Jesus as your Savior. Well, what does that mean? And people usually do it in an emotional moment. Like their life has changed or they feel God moving them. Uh, I was talking to Brett Nation this last week, and he's, he's going through uh, his master's in theological studies and and one of the things that they're talking about in the charismatic movements, the Holy Spirit comes and washes over people and, and people have this moment where the Holy Spirit guides them to this place. Sometimes in their movement, it means to be speaking in tongues or uh, something else, right? For us, there's, a, there's a, a piece that combines the heart and the mind that says, I want to follow the footsteps of Jesus. I want to... I want to do this the right way. I keep saying that because I think of the poem Footprints, right? Like that that really, really sunk deep within me. So there's this idea that we assume that when somebody accepts Christ, which is why they say this right at the very beginning, uh, thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world of lust, you, and maybe become participants of the divine nature. Well, how? Well, for this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith. And then boom, 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 boom. 
I, I like uh, verse three too. Uh, it's uh, it's not by your own strength that you have to go through these steps. Right. It's His power that is giving you the ability to be good. That's right. It's giving you the ability to to do all these things, to have self control, and uh, that that makes it a lot. Of, I don't know. It's it's encouraging to me to know that it's not by my strength that I'm going to be growing in Christ. It's 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 truly through God's strength. Well, I, the similarities between the fruit of the spirit from Paul hmm. and what Peter's saying here uh, with the knowledge and goodness and self-control and endurance and godliness, they're, they're very similar. It's overlapping. Two of them did not really like each other. No, no. So, and, and the, so now we're giving them a how-to guide, obviously a different group of people, but maybe not a different group of people. Maybe, well, that one didn't work. Maybe this one will. You see how Christianity today struggles with that? Now you have a thousand different ways uh, of understanding this one little passage. Good. Do you think it is more difficult in our world today to profess to be a Christian than it would have been back then? These people are, are used to being under the thumb. Or go a different direction. They have all the gods that they can ever think of if they just want to pick half a dozen and follow. Mm -hmm. More more, I can do it myself. I mean, I'm talking about the United States. Yes. Other countries are still under the thumb of people that... And they're growing in Christianity like it's wildfire. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is I think because we're not under the thumb of any particular group and we think on our own we tend to think we can do it here's I mean, here, here's how i do this because that's a that's a big question right and it's not a rabbit trail in the first century they're under the thumb of persons that are telling them this is how you're going to live your life when you look around the globe today you see countries that are underneath that thumb you introduce to them something like jesus and they not only get it, they understand it fully. And that's why I think you're seeing the Christianity grow in countries like Ghana and Africa. And it's just, I mean, it's just booming, like in India and places like that. India is not really under anybody's thumb, but there's this idea that Christianity... They still have a caste system there. Yeah, the caste system is very strong. So, um, so you see that growing there. I, I think... The data that we are finding in the United States, especially in the last century, um, you know, because there's groups now that study all this this data, is that people in the United States have been inundated with the fifty thousand flavors of Jesus. That if they hear about it one way, they're going to go where they feel comfortable, and it doesn't mean the same thing. And, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say. There, I mean, there, there's. I, I hate to say it this way, but there's not as much of a uh, needs not the right word. They they are more open. They can see it easier. I guess is what I'm trying to say. They yeah. can they can feel the presence of God where yeah. we can lift a switch and go a different direction. Yes, and I'm I'm attributing that to why we're where we're at. Well, yeah. You know, the question is why are the numbers changing? And, and then the, just the data just shows that 
people have been inundated with it so much that they've already heard this. They have a t-shirt or a bracelet made with it on there. Uh, they went to a concert and somebody preached it to them and they go, oh, that was really cool. I really love that band. But when you come talk to them afterwards, they're like, well, I don't know what that really means. Yeah. You know, here, here's a bumper sticker. Here's a bumper sticker, <laughs> right? Like, and, I, and I'm not trying to be flippant. You know, I, I, I'm being as academic as I can in the sense that if you look at this from the first century, they're hearing this with new ears. This gives them new life. Something about Christianity in the United States is it's it's lost its saltiness for some. And those that are feel as though they're suffocating and starving can't seem to find the forest through the trees because we are the forest. Mm -hmm. I just, I think whatever you... I mean, trees. <laughs> I think people in the United States can get whatever they believe they need. And that's also why you're seeing so hollow of people. Mm -hmm. Because they can, they, can, they can get the basic needs without a whole lot of trouble. Well, yeah, and they can't get the spiritual, and they think they can get there without that. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, there's, there's another component to this that I will add to this that's going to come up in the next part that we read. This is about a community. You cannot be, uh, you can be a Christian kind of by yourself, but almost throughout the entire New Testament, ecclesia, the, the community of faith matters. You have to be a part of a group of people. You you can be a Christian by yourself, right? You can I can do Jesus all by myself. I don't need you, right? But you do. You know that's part of the thing that the first the first century church is starting to understand, and 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 that's where communities of faith get started. Well, let's keep reading this part because I I definitely want to keep going, but. We could go all day long on this one um, because it's that deep. But this is beautiful how he, this next person does this. So for if for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, sorry, see how this totally segues with what we were talking about. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have been eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For he had received honor and glory from him, the God, the Father, when the voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, uh, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, this is Matthew's gospel, by the way, um, which is a big deal. Remember how I told you that in one gospel, Jesus is baptized and the audience hears it. In another gospel, the, uh, Jesus hears it. Mm -hmm. So this has to be the church that somehow knows about the church from Matthew. So it kind of gives us some origin mm -hmm. and data as to where it was. Isn't this written before Matthew, though? It is written before Matthew, which is fascinating. So, but, you know, the the one that, that doesn't say everybody hears it doesn't say that everybody's here. It doesn't well, it say only say God it. hears it, does it? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's designed so that you know that Jesus only heard it. Because I was thinking like the, the we don't we don't know the disciples were baptized, but we don't they weren't baptized either. It so, would say it. Yeah. I'm I'm that that's 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 that one place I go. Okay. He, 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 
they would want you to say, in this particular example, Tim, they would want you to say, in this place, the crowd heard this. Um, if we were reading in another passage and Jesus heard it, they would use the direct language from Mark. So it's kind of a big deal. But this isn't the baptism. Referring, this is referring to the transfiguration, right? This is on a mountain. This is Peter, James, and John hearing or being there for that, right? Mm. Or am I wrong? Mm. Is it not about baptism? Mm. It's the same language. We were with him on the sacred mountain. Yeah. Your sis mountain? Um, Mine's yeah. holy mountain. Holy mountain. When it, we heard the verse 18. Born from heaven, for we were with we him. We ourselves heard it from coming from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Right. It's just not a crowd. It's not a crowd. And Peter was there. Mm -hmm. Well, the Peter. Right. Yeah, mine, mine says sacred. Yeah. It's not I, I guess that's what's going to be my question whether those are two separate words or. Sacred yeah. is a different word in Greek. Yeah. Holy in today's world is. More, more powerful than sacred to me. I mean, mm -hmm. sacred oh, meaning of God, sacred to the church. Yes. I'm making a big deal out of this because it's the same language used at Jesus's baptism mm -hmm. as well as his transfiguration. And the crowd hears it at the beginning and only Peter and James and John hear it at the end. You see? So this is this is a extremely high theological concept. But that phrase, this is my son, the beloved whom I'm with whom I'm well pleased, that's a that's a massive thing. It's it's delineating uh God being different than Jesus. I'm gonna blow your minds for just a second. You know how I talk about. In most cases, everyone in in our church, in some way or another, is a Trinitarian. Of yeah. course. That's right. Of course. That's right. So there's God slash Father or Creator. Then there's Son slash Christ. And then there's uh, Holy Spirit, which we uh, uh, put with grace, right? And, and guidance and things that nature. The first century church is struggling with what do you do with Jesus? Because now you're dividing God into three parts. We've already had two millennia to figure that out. Or three gods. Or three, yeah, three gods. You've, I mean, you've created three gods out of one. If you're Jewish, that's a no-no. And believe it or not, the Gentiles are struggling with this also. So even if you think Jupiter and you think he has two kids, Right? Uh, those two kids don't have another piece of it. If you go with uh, the other ones, you say Zeus and he has his son Hercules. Well, there's nothing that goes along with Hercules that makes it different. It's just Zeus's power going into human form in the, in the form of a Hercules. Uh, there's no Holy Spirit. I mean, like, that's just weird. 
So Gentiles struggle with this too. All the gods you can see. All the gods you can see in, in the Roman and Greek worlds. And how do you see it? Well, you can see it in the thunder. You can see it in the ground. You can see it in the wars. You can see it in the beard. The right? sun like, and the moon. The sun and the moon. Right. And so all of these things you can see. God, you can't. But you saw Jesus. We have eyewitnesses. Can you see the Holy Spirit? No. So now you've got Jesus, the Son, and two pieces that you can't see. See how it might get com uh, confusing? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. It's also confusing for us when we're trying to describe it. Maybe so it's linear. God showed himself to earth as Jesus, and Jesus left a piece of himself, the Holy Spirit, behind to comfort people when he was gone. Linear, so it's a straight line rather than triangle. It's a beautiful concept. I mean, I'm just admitting. I mean, I think that's the beautiful part about today is this: we can say that in the first century. I mean, like there, the idea that God is two pieces, just two pieces. So it's hard. Is the Trinity equilateral? Uh, I, mean, I, I don't. I don't know if the first century church ever answers that. Triangle with God at the top. Yeah, I don't think the church ever, ever really in the my, in my the, triangles really worked. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I think if, if we were if, again, we're we're using symbology that they they've never thought about in the first century. It's just the concept they're still trying to wrap their brain around. It's the question they haven't even got to the point of well, God's like this, or God looks like this, or like in the triangle, or. A warped oval, or you know what they, they is the concept is. There's a creator, uh, and then there's this thing that came to us on Earth that did miraculous things. And a redeemer, a redeemer, and and we use language like savior and lord, which is a big deal in the first century. And then we have uh, this thing that they keep telling us about this spirit pneuma that. We can't see, but it tells us what to do. What? I mean, I, mean, I went on a rabbit trail for a second, but what I wanted you to see specifically here is the person writing this letter is now coming up with an institutional concept. This is an early part of where we start to see a separation between God and Jesus. And this person is saying, he is the son of God. How do we know that? Well, we heard God tell us so. We were there. So this is an, an institutional idea. So they're trying to come up with a delineation. They're just still trying to come up with answering the original question. What is Jesus? Well, we heard a voice tell us it's his son. Eyewitness news. Eyewitness news. <laughs> yeah, and, and a revelation. This isn't something they deduced right. on their own. I didn't make this up. It was revealed That's to right. them. And so then let's keep going. So, for example, so we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this, to a light as a lamp, to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but by men, but men and women 
moved by, now you see where this is going, Holy Spirit from God. Now we have another institutional idea. This, this is new. This, this theology that there's a Holy Spirit now moving humans. Oops. But I got to stop there for right God's talking through humans. I mean, I mean that the Holy Spirit allows But they would have understood the prophets. Yeah, they would have. They would have remembered them. Yeah, yeah, they would. Uh, they would have definitely remembered them, and and understood the difference between a prophetic message and, and a prophecy. Right? Like, there's a. I know that sounds weird, but like, you can make prophetic messages all day long, but then there's the prophecy of something that had to have come true. Yeah. At, at some point. In the New Testament. Next back to the prophets to legitimize everything, which is weird too. Because they, they they use very few of the prophets, and a lot of the prophets that we probably could attach to Jesus, they don't use. They they use like Isaiah for some reason. We we always go back to Isaiah a bunch. Where and I just read a trail. Sorry, uh, I'll stop there. It's interesting how they attach their prophets to. Jesus we, in the we, New Testament. We do the same thing. We do. You was talking about um, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We go back and use whatever knowledge we have of him that works for whatever we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Forget about the human part of it. I mean, forget about slave owner, whatever. It just gets. Listen, I. It, it, it gets ignored. Well, and, 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 and unless you. Unless you dig deep, you we all do everything surface level, right? We just look at things on the surface. You never challenge the thing. You're not going to challenge it. You <laughs> challenge it. You do what they. That's right. They just do. You even, just do in, even in your world today. <laughs> yes, yes. I challenge my teachers on a regular basis. The Thomas Jefferson thing for me, for example, was as I came to, from Oklahoma to Virginia, and I moved literally into the backyard of this summer home, and I'm like. Oh, I mean, I like Thomas Jefferson. He's so cool. And then and I'm like, so I decided to go check out his summer home, Poplar Forest. And I'm like, this is neat. And he's got his journal there and it's got a piece of his Bible. And I went, what? That is not what I remembered of him in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this person decides to bring a jackhammer at five o'clock in the morning and start digging in my backyard when my wife was pregnant, Madeline. And I come outside and didn't say things that were ministerial to him. And he says, oh, sorry, we have permission that you're giving an archaeological because we think that he, he created a mass grave here for slaves. And you're like, well, we knew he had slaves, so that's not a big deal. But the fact that he just buried him in one big pit, nobody did that. So it just shows you that, I mean, even, even the way that he classified human life was different, right? So why am I making a big deal about Thomas Jefferson? So he on the surface, and in a lot of ways, one of the, the most ingenious men of all time. He was the Leonardo da Vinci of our country. 
He was truly a Renaissance man in the United States. Uh, but even Leonardo da Vinci, we struggle with his understanding of God and faith. And and all all I'm referencing is we go back and we pick whatever yeah works right. for what yeah. we're trying to. Yeah. Sometimes we make up our own. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to teach. That's right. We're not going to teach. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. So before I close the recording, this person here has already established several things in the first chapter, which is why it makes it such a cool book. So right off the bat, you've got a way to live Christian life that we've not had before. This is what it means to live a Christian life. These are your barometer checks. Nobody's done that, according to this person. The second part that you get, now you have a clear delineation as to what Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. How do we know that? Well, I was there. I heard God say at the transfiguration this moment. And he used the same words that he used at the baptism that we all witnessed. Just coincidentally, by the way. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, and then this is what it meant for prophets to be moved. Because no human being, man or woman, has ever done anything without the Holy Spirit of God. Boom. It has created all three pieces for you in the first chapter. If you have a false teacher, they're not going to teach that. That's your barometer. So next week, when we come back, it's going to go into... Here's what false teachers do, and here's what God's going to do to them, very clearly and defined as to how that works. Again, another barometer, another way to check who is right and who is wrong in this place. I have to keep saying this over and over again. Remember, first century, the first century is trying to figure out how to manage what it is that they do now that the Temple of Jerusalem is gone. And some of these people probably weren't Jewish that were hearing this, but probably most of them were. So with that being said, I'm going to stop the recording.